Would you open up your Bibles to Psalms chapter 124, Psalm 124. So we're continuing our weekly study this summer. We're through the uh, book of Psalms, Psalm 124. We're looking at the Psalms of Ascent this summer, which is Psalms 124 through Psalm, or rather Psalm 120 through 134. So today we're at Psalm 124 on page 613, if you're using a Pew Bible, Psalm 124, page 613. June 6th, 1944. What day? D-Day. That's right. Uh, 70 years ago, just recently, we celebrated the 70th anniversary of D-Day. And it's, uh, it's one of those days that even 70 years later still captures the hearts and the imagination of, of us, um, at least it does for me. I, I still am intrigued by that day. And I was trying to think why D-Day uh, still has that, that kind of mystical allure to it and, and awe and wonder. And, and I suppose that there's probably not a lot of days like that day. You know, you had the, the ultimate uh, bad guy, right? You had a, a hostile nation taking over a continent Germany had taken over all of Western Europe. The people there were lost. They were, they were hopeless. They, were, they really had no chance of fighting back against the German war machine. And then you had this rescue effort. You had on that day, June 6, 1944, Operation Overlord, where the Allied forces hurled some 150,000 personnel, all totaled, through, you know, ships and pilots and soldiers at the beaches of Normandy. I mean, I mean it wasn't a, a little operation. It was an epic counterpunch. It, it, it was like, you know, it, it was legendary in scope to see that kind of a heroic attack against that kind of an enemy all in order to liberate a continent. You know, it's the kind of thing that, that great epic novels uh, would tell of, and yet it really happened. And so for that reason, it, it captures the imagination, and even 70 years later, people are still awed and wowed and uh, inspired by the heroism and the gutsiness and, the, the, again, almost like mythic scale of that invasion. And people are still thankful today for those who gave their lives and for the courage that it took. If you can kind of feel D-Day, even those of us who read about it in the history books and who didn't live in those times. But if you can kind of feel D-Day and, and, and sort of get your emotions around that, that sense of like, wow, what a rescue. Wow, what, what an incredible heroic save that that was. Then you're in the right emotional mindset to really appreciate Psalm 124. As we look at Psalm 124, the emotion that it's trying to convey, because you know the Psalms are poems, and so part of what they're trying to do is convey emotion. The, the emotion of Psalm 124 is very much the awe and wonder of an epic rescue where people are like, wow, we would have been toast if it wasn't for that intervention. Except in this case, it's not Western Europe being rescued. It's a psalm about the deliverance of Israel. And in this case, the rescuer is not the allied forces, but it was God himself. 
So let me read Psalm 124, and as I read it, just see if you can kind of hear and feel that, that emotion that's in this psalm of awe and wonder at God's dramatic rescue. Psalm 124. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when men attacked us, when their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord who's not let us be torn by their teeth. We've escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Did you get that feel? It's kind of a D-Day celebration kind of feel. Wow, look what God has done to save and rescue us from certain disaster. We were on the brink of being wiped out, and God rescued us. Let me just point out a few things about this psalm, uh, just to kind of give you the structure of it. Even though it's a short psalm, it has a logic and a structure. So verses 1 to 5 is the remembrance this is, this is when the psalmist is inviting all of Israel to remember a past rescue, remembering the rescue. And then verses 6 and 7, you might call the rejoicing. So, I remember what God did. We remember what God did. And then we rejoice. Praise be to the Lord, verse 6. And then verse 8 is kind of a declaration. Our help is in the name of the Lord. It's kind of the moral of the story. This is what you're supposed to learn from this psalm. God saves those in need. So uh, that's the structure. Or you can think about it this way. Think of the psalm as a past, present, and future. The past, verses 1 to 5, here's what God did. Verses 6 to 7 is the present. Yay, praise the Lord. And then verse 8 is the future. As we move ahead into the future, we're going to know that our help is in the name of God. And as we come upon other terrible situations and difficulties, we're going to trust in the Lord. So that's kind of the flow of the psalm. So then, what was the historical incident that this psalm celebrates? D-Day, we celebrate that particular historical instance in European and American history. But but what what instance was Psalm 124 celebrating? And the answer is we don't really know. The language is so vague and so broad, it could cover a number of instances, but I think maybe that's the point. Because if you look at Israel's history, if you were to read the Old Testament and just kind of study the history of Israel, what you find is that Israel's history is peppered with D-Day experiences, where Israel was in a total mess, totally hopeless, on the verge of extinction, and God rescues And then they get off track, and they get into a disaster again, and God rescues, and God rescues, and God rescues. If you like D-Day, you'll love the Old Testament, because it's God bailing Israel out supernaturally, dramatically, again and again. And, And it's an encouraging story, because we obviously can see ourselves there, how many times we've needed God to pluck us out of the fire. So that's the history of Israel, and I think that's why this psalm is so vague, is, is because it can be applied again and again throughout Israel's story and in our story as well. And that's part of what the psalms are. They're, they're language in the Bible to help us put to words our own experiences with God. And so here's Psalm 124, a terrible disaster. So we don't know the exact historical instance, but we know it was terrible. Just look at the psalm a little more specifically. You'll notice, that, again, that there was some 
horrible calamity that was about to befall God's people. They were being attacked. And even though we don't know the exact historical instance, we get a sense of how terrible it was. If you look at these verses, there, there are four um, emotionally charged images that communicate the dire situation. So do you, do you see the emotionally charged imagery here that communicates how bad it was for Israel? The first one, I'll, I'll just point out the four. The first one is being swallowed up. Look at verse 3. When their anger flared against us, they would have swallowed us alive. That's an awful image. You know, that's bad when you're about to be swallowed alive. Israel was the little white mouse dropped into the aquarium with the Burmese python. And there's the little white mouse in the corner, you know, doing, you know, the mice stuff. And here's the Burmese python, you know, moving. You can just see it. And you're sitting there watching the aquarium going, oh, no, I, don't, I can't watch. I'm going to watch. I can't watch. And just as that Burmese python is moving in to swallow the little mouse alive, God reaches in and snatches the mouse out. That's the picture. It was that bad. We were about to be swallowed alive by our circumstances. Or the second emotionally charged image. The first is being swallowed alive. The second is drowning in a flood. Look at verse 4. The flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. That's another great image of what it's like to be overwhelmed by a disastrous situation. It's like being swallowed alive. It's like, you know, ah, you know drowning in the flood and the raging waters. I'm thinking, too, in, uh, in the desert in Israel, they would have what we call flash floods, right? There were these ravines in Israel. They call them wadis. Uh, I grew up in the desert. Some of you know I grew up in Las Vegas. We had flash floods. Most of the time, no rain, sunshine, baked earth. And then every once in a while, it would rain. And when it rained, there would be flash flood warnings because all the water and all the mountains wouldn't soak into the ground. It would run over the rocks and the baked earth. It would come down in these, we didn't call them wadis, we called them washes or gullies. And, and these, you, know, you, you could be standing in a gully on a rainy day and look up and a wall of water could be coming at you. Uh, I have a childhood memory of um, driving, uh, I think we were just on the south side of Las Vegas and we were going on a road around the city and it had rained and I remember the road kind of went and went down through a little gully. And, and that gully was full of water. And I saw a car, you know, in the desert bobbing down this flash flood. And, you know, you have these little pictures in your mind as a kid like, wow, look at that. I wonder if there's anyone in that car, you know. And it, it was like that where most of the time you're fine. And all of a sudden the torrent comes out of nowhere and sweeps you away. That's how it can be in life, not only at at the epic scale of nations, but also in our own personal lives. Have you ever been hit by a flash flood in life? One day you're fine, and then one diagnosis later, not so good. And it seems your whole life is being swept by forces beyond your control. One day you're fine, and then a painful confession by a spouse, a, uh, a lawyer serving you with a lawsuit, um, a drunk driver, uh, an awful moment of abuse or date rape or molestation, one moment, and it's like your whole life just 
is caught up in, in pain and in, in circumstances that you just feel like I'm being swept away. There are forces beyond my control that, that are, are so turbulent. That's what the psalmist is describing here. I, I had no hope. I was being swallowed. I was drowning under terrible, terrible events. A flash flood. Or look at the third emotionally charged image. This is another terrible one. Being torn apart by animals. Verse 6. Praise be to the Lord who has not let us be torn by their teeth. So God has pulled them out of being swallowed up. He's rescued them out of the raging torrent. He's rescued them from the wild animals that were going to shred them. They're about to be shredded by beasts. I have another childhood memory. I'm sure all my childhood memories with you. This feels therapeutic. This is good. I, uh, uh, my, uh, uh, I remember we were fishing, and we had come out of fishing, and there was the, the kind of the boat landing area. There weren't any other cars around, and my we had our car parked truck over here. My dad was doing something in the truck. I was with him. And in this big boat landing area, my sister was out kind of in the middle. She must have been like two or three at the time, just standing there like that. And I don't know where it come from, but there was a, like a German shepherd running full tilt at my sister. And like, you know, in just that instinct kicked in or whatever. Those of you who know dogs, I mean, you, you, know, you know when a dog's, like, not happy. And it was, it was in that, like, I'm going to go attack that prey. And it was just flying full speed right at my sister. And my, I remember my mom yelled my dad's name, Bill! And my dad turned around, and that, like, superhuman dad thing happened, where he was, like, I don't know how he got to my sister so fast. He just, like, exploded, and he got to my sister. And I just have that, that image in my head of him just scooping her up as the dog was like, you know, he was like, like this, you know, and, and it, it was like, oh, you know, and we we're all crying, and it was a really dramatic moment. Um, just swept up at the last minute. Oh, if he hadn't have been there, she would have been torn by teeth. A terrifying image, but th- that's the kind of experience the psalmist is relating. And then there's the fourth image. So we have swallowing. Drowning, shredding, and the fourth image is netting. There's a, a, a snare, verse 7. We've escaped like a bird out of the fowler's snare. The snare's been broken and we've escaped. If you were ever going to hunt birds back in those days, I mean, today you use a shotgun. But if you're going to hunt birds back then, you didn't have shotguns. So you could use arrows, which is tough with birds, unless you're Legolas or something. Um, there, you know, maybe you could use a sling. The other way you'd catch birds is with nets. And so you'd put a, put a snare up and try to drive the birds into it or throw the net over the birds. And they said, it's like we got caught in a net. Have you ever been caught in a net? Have you ever had something bad happen to you and you realize that the person who did it to you has actually been plotting it for some time? And you thought they were fine and they were smiling at you. The person at work, they're all, it's all good, we're all happy. You didn't realize for months they've been stringing a net together and then they spring the net over you. There's been a plot to capture you. And the psalmist says, we would have been like a bird in a net if not for the Lord. Images of near catastrophe except for one thing, God intervened. 
that these were bad situations, that they were in the situation, the situation was happening, but before the worst could come, God somehow rescued. Again, verses 1 and 2. If the Lord had not been on our side, then I love this. Let Israel say, it's one of those like, good morning, everyone. Good morning. No, I can't hear you. Good morning. You know, let Israel say, I can't hear you. Let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, that the only difference between life and death, the only thing that saved Israel in this psalm was divine intervention. That it was such a bad situation that there was no human remedy. They couldn't think their way out of it. They couldn't swim out of it. They couldn't escape the wild animal. They were out in the middle of the, the, the boat ramp. They, they had no way of escaping. They were like France under Nazi oppression. They were not going to throw off the German war machine from upon them. Hopeless, if not for a divine invasion of rescue to save them if not for a D-Day operation from heaven coming in to sweep them up and rescue them from this dire, terrible threat. That's what this psalm is celebrating, a supernatural rescue from God. Now, the fact is that anytime anything good happens to us in life, it is the hand of God. If you go, if you have a sinus infection, and you go to the doctor, and they give you antibiotics, and it clears up your sinus infection, you got healed by God. That's fact. I mean, God is at work in all things. The reason medicine works and the reason the laws of nature work and the reason scientists can discover things and science works is because the hand of God. That's why when I work all day and you work all day and we earn money and then we use that money to buy bread and we make the bread and we eat it, we thank God for our food because we recognize that God is behind all things, that God is upholding reality, that the reason I can do anything I do is because God is graciously holding my molecules together. And so we recognize that every good thing comes from God, or we should. And yet there are those those certain times, we call them supernatural. We distinguish between natural and supernatural, but really there is no distinction. But, But there are those times where God has to act in such a way that I can't even point to the antibiotics. I just have to say... I don't know how it happened. God just rescued me. If it hadn't been for the Lord, I would have been lost. Do you have any instances like that in your life where you can remember where you say, God must have been in that car? God must have been at that party because I can't explain it. I should be dead. I should be lost. God must have been in that room with me. I was in a bad place. God must have done it. I can't think of any other natural explanation. It, it's, it's overwhelming, the coincidence and the, 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 the salvation that I experienced. And there are those times in our lives where God acts in a way beyond what we would call the natural mechanisms of life, though he is very much operating in those just as much. But he acts supernaturally and above and beyond our normal experience of the laws of nature as we call them, and he shows that it really is him, that he alone saves. And so the psalmist says, if the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been done for. So Israel looked back in its history and says, look, look at all the things God has done. You, you know, we could, we could probably spend this whole morning just 
thinking of biblical stories of divine rescue from the Old Testament. But I'll just kind of reference one. that The granddaddy of them all was when Israel was rescued from Egypt. Israel was in slavery in Egypt. Moses came and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. Eventually, Pharaoh relented after many uh, plagues came to Egypt. He let the people go. The people left Egypt, and then Pharaoh changed his mind. And he changed his mind when the Israelites got to the edge of the Red Sea, and then the armies of Pharaoh, the, the entire military, mustered and gave chase. And there was Israel caught between the Red Sea and the armies of Pharaoh, between the anvil and the hammer. No escape. Totally doomed. Do you know the story? And then they started complaining against Moses. Why did you lead us out of Egypt to die? Why didn't we just stay there? That was better. I'd rather be a slave than die here by the Red Sea. And they're whining and complaining. And I love what Moses says. Stand still and see the deliverance of the Lord. And he stretches out his hand and a supernatural Beyond naturalistic explanation, things happen by the power of God. The Red Sea parts, the Israelites go through, the Egyptians follow, and the sea closes in over them. The Egyptians are swallowed. The Egyptians drown in the flood. The Egyptians are caught in the trap. And it's an epic, legendary scale rescue from God. And so the psalm is calling them to remember. Remember what God has done. Remember how he saved you. Remember all the times God has intervened on your behalf. And that remembrance then, going back to Psalm 124, the remembrance in verses 1 to 5 of the divine rescue, the, the what-if game that they play. Man, what if God hadn't rescued us? Woo! We'd be lost. You ever play the what-if game? What if God hadn't helped me? It'd be really bad today. Thank God he helped me. That leads then to rejoicing. That's verses 6 and 7. Praise be to the Lord. So remembrance leads to rejoicing. When we remember what God has done for us, it should stir up in us worship and awe and praise for God. Um, and, and, And there's an order to that. Remembrance leads to rejoicing. Isn't that interesting? You often think about worship. You know, here we are in a worship service. And sometimes we use the word worship in a very limited way to simply refer to the music in the service. You know how we talk. We say, how was church today? Oh, the worship was good. The youth led the worship. And then the sermon was good. And then, um, you know, the, uh, the Scripture reading was good. As if those are different things from worship. Right? Worship is, is listening to God's Word and singing and praying and tithing. I mean, everything is, is an act of worship together. But you could say that what we do here to, as part of our worship is we, we engage in a corporate activity of remembrance. We're coming together to remember who God is, what God has done, and what God has said. And that remembrance fuels our worship. And, and the more we remember who God is and what He's done in His mighty acts in the Bible and in our lives, the more fuel that is for worship. Think of worship. Think of you as a worshiping person and us as a worshiping church. Think of worship as like, just use an illustration here, it's like a, it's like a wood-burning stove. Or maybe use pellets. Maybe you're modern, I don't know. Pellet stove, for those of you who have pellets. We all, we're familiar with that here in New England. Probably many of us New Englanders have had a, a fond memory of a power outage gathered around somebody's wood-burning stove. 
in somebody's house, making it through a couple days of cold. And you know how wood-burning stoves work? You, you, they, they radiate heat. They're just big pieces of metal that, that shoot out heat, and, and they warm the room and the space. And, uh, and if you think about that wood-burning stove radiating heat, think about that as an illustration or an image of our hearts as followers of Christ worshiping God. That, that heat that's radiating out is like our, our worship and praise of God, right? In fact, we use that language. Boy, that guy, he's really on fire for Christ. You know, oh, my heart's kind of cold toward God. Right? We kind of use that imagery. So, so there's a person who's worshiping and that, that heat coming out of their affections and their, their, their emotions and their thoughts of, of joy and thankfulness to God. And there's sometimes in our lives when that's red hot and sometimes when it's cool. And, and so how do, you, how do you sustain red-hot worship for God? You know, imagine you went to someone's house and it was cold and they had a wood-burning stove and, and the per- you walk in the house and it's cold. And you're like, wow, why is it so cold in here? And you see your friend huddled by the wood-burning stove. He's like, it's just not very warm. It's really cold. The stove's cold. It's just putting out a little bit of heat. What's wrong? Why is my stove so cold, man? Like, what would you say? Like, put some, would you put any wood in it recently? Oh, yeah. It's been like a day since I put wood in. They open it up, and it's just little embers. Well, that's your problem, man. Why don't you stick some wood in there? Oh, you're a genius. <laughs> Stoke some wood in, and pretty soon, an hour later, the, the room is, you know, people are taking off sweaters, and it's like, whoo, this is nice in here. Amazing how that works when you put wood in a wood-burning stove. It just heats up. And that's how worship is. We need to stoke worship, but we stoke it with what? With truth. Truth fuels worship. The truth of who God is and what God has done. And this is the biggest pile of truth that God has given us. And we read God's word and we're like, that's right, I forgot that. God did that. That's what God is like. God's still like that. In fact, I can remember some times in my own life when God has been like that. Wow. That stokes and fuels our worship. And the more I I can fuel my mind and my heart remembering who God is and what God has done, the more it, it radiates thankfulness and praise in my heart. It's just how it works. So you meet someone and they're like, man, my, my faith is cold. The faith's grown cold. There's not a lot there. You say, wow. Well, uh, you know, have you, you've been reading God's Word every day and just holding on to it. Now it's been a while since I read the Bible. Well, how about your, your growth group, your Bible study? You know, the Christians that you meet with regularly to study God's Word. How, how's that going? Don't have one of those. Well, how's church at least? You go in there to hear God's word and, and study it together and sing it? Haven't been to church in a couple months. My faith's cold. I don't know why it's cold. Like, put some wood in a stove, man. You need to fuel it with what God has told us about himself, what his truth says, and then fuel it with remembrances of his work in your life. You need to talk to other Christians and just hear, like, what God's doing in their life. That's fellowship. You know, I've got to tell you what God did for me this week. Really? He did that? Wow. God is still alive, and he's still working. 
And so, so we fuel each other. And even if, even if you don't have it, can't see, can't put your finger on what God is doing in your life, you hear what God is doing in other people's lives, and it should cause you to rejoice that God is still saving, and it gives you strength to keep waiting, and it fuels you. And so the whole body working together, remembering together, remembering primarily from his word, but remembering from our experiences, remembering through communion and baptism, gathering, remembering this is who God is. He still is this. Because the problem is, it's just like wood. In our current spiritual condition, this side of heaven, we forget all the time. It's not that God stopped being God. We just forget. We're like spiritual ADD, spiritual dementia. We just forget. We have a hard time holding on. You can remember all kinds of things. For some reason, have a hard time remembering all the time how awesome God is. That leaks. That's a spiritual condition we have that, that won't be fixed this side of eternity. And so we have to keep stoking with remembrances of our God. And when we do remember, when we remember what He's done and how He's saved us, it just fuels worship. It fuels it. I mean, don't you feel it here? Like when I'm in church, I just feel like more worship coming out of me. I'm, I'm near all the other wood-burning stoves. And we're all getting stoked together, and it's like, woo, it's so hot, you know. And by Wednesday, I'm like, mm-hmm. but, you know, I get back here with you on Sunday, and I'm like, woo. And I, I need stoking. I need fuel. So do you. That's how it is in the Christian life. Heaven's going to be great because we'll never run out. It'll be right in front of us. There won't be any going cold there. It'll be red hot, melting with worship. But here it takes stoking. And not only does it lead to worship, but when we remember by God's, when we remember the truths of who God is and what God has done, His mighty acts, His great salvations, it not only helps our worship, but just verse 8, it helps our, our witness. There's, there's the witness, verse 8. Our help's in the name of the Lord. And now we're going from me praising God to kind of all of us declaring to the world, God is the one who saves. Look to God. And same thing. You know, one of the things we struggle with as Christians, we struggle with telling others about how great God is. And, and it's, again, if, if I'm feeding the truth of who God is and I'm in a state of remembering and treasuring Christ and all He's done for me, witnessing happens more naturally. And when I'm not, it's, it's more artificial. So, uh, you know, you're, you're done. You come come out of school, or I guess you guys aren't in school anymore. Um, you're playing video games on Xbox or whatever, um, whatever you do in the summer. Uh, you're at work, you're finishing a Zumba class, whatever, um, and you're talking to your friend, and you say, how's it going, man? And in the moment of honesty, they're like, ah, don't ask. Really bad, really bad. Things are bad at home, things are bad here. I don't know what to do. And you know when my furnace is really cold, my answer to that is usually something like, ah, sorry to hear that. That stinks. Right? But when my furnace is hot, then I'm like, hey, can I, I'm going to pray for you. You know? And when it's really hot, I'll say, hey, I know this is weird. We're right here in the YMCA in our Zumba class, but can I pray for you right now? And when I'm really, really hot, then I'm like, man, I just want you to know God can help you. God helps people who call upon him. He's helped me a lot. I'll pray for you, but you need to pray too, right? And, and that just happens when we're, we're in a consciousness of God's greatness. God is great. It's just about our, 
awareness and alertness all the time. And we struggle. And there are things in life that come against us that, that would try to dampen and cool our fires. It would cause us to doubt who God is. It's not just that we have spiritual ADD, but, but the circumstances of life, the torrents that sweep over us would try to dampen that fire. So we need to keep remembering who God is and what He's done. And so that's Psalm 124. Hey, Israel, remember, rejoice, declare. And brothers and sisters, if Israel had cause to remember and rejoice in the salvation of God, how much more do we, the church of God, have to give thanks for and to remember Yeah, they were saved from Egypt. They were saved from armies. But we have been saved from eternal judgment through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The most heroic, the most epic, the greatest, most supernatural salvation that God has ever wrought on earth was when he became a man and came to save us. In fact, it makes D-Day look like small potatoes. It makes everything in the Old Testament look small. In fact, you suddenly realize that all of the Old Testament salvations were merely prefigurements and foreshadowings of this great one that was coming. They were merely setting the stage and reminding us of who God is so that when finally God's great act of salvation came, we would know that this is the God who does this kind of thing. And our minds would be blown at the scale of it. Can I just show you one little verse, actually two verses? Colossians chapter 1. It's on page 1165 in the Pew Bible. Just turn there real quick. Colossians chapter 1, page 1165. This is, we're now in the New Testament. This is the Apostle Paul. Looking back now on our salvation in Christ, Psalm 124 was before Jesus, Colossians is after Jesus, and so now we're looking back, and here's Paul, and he's trying to encourage the Christians to put out a little more heat. They're kind of cold, so he's encouraging them. You know, verse 12, look at verse 12 of Colossians 1, giving thanks to God the Father, Or look at verse 11. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, that you can have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks. Come on, guys, get with it. You know, more patience, more endurance, give thanks, get hot, guys. But what's the basis of getting hot and and having faith and having joy? Here's the remembrance, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And has brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So our great rescue moment is that we, if you're a follower of Christ, you have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of Jesus through redemption and the forgiveness of your sins. That's our great rescue. That's our great exodus, right? Rescued from the dominion of darkness. We were all, we are all, our natural state spiritually is under the dominion of darkness. Every human being on planet earth, especially me, lives naturally apart from God's help 
under the dominion of darkness. That may sound strange, huh? I think dominion of darkness. I mean, you know, addicts who are in a rehab, I mean, they're under the dominion of darkness. I mean, I can see that. People in the mafia and organized crime, they're obviously under the dominion of darkness. Um, You know, the Satanists, the people who wanted to hold the black mass at Harvard a month ago, I mean, obviously they're under the dominion of darkness. But most of us are good, decent people. I wouldn't say I'm under the dominion of darkness. But without Christ, we're under the dominion of darkness. I heard a great story uh, a couple weeks ago. It was actually at our annual business meeting as a church. We have an annual meeting where we elect leaders. We call them elders in the church. And uh, one of the the, uh, traditions we have in our church is when people want to be an elder, they share their story of how they became a Christian. And uh, one of our elders named Jim Jim uh, shared his story, and it was great. And, uh, and, you know, when he told his story, it didn't sound like someone under the dominion of darkness. So I'll just retell his story. It was sort of like this. It was like, I grew up in a home. My parents loved me. It wasn't a problem. I didn't come away with big issues with my parents. He got married. He has a great marriage. He's still married to his, his wife. They had two kids. I know these kids. They're great. Uh, they're living good lives. He's had a successful career. They were church-going people. You know, you hear his story, and, and you're like, okay, where's the, the part about you being a secret meth cook, you know, in your garage? Like, <laughs> it's got to be a breaking bad, you know, bad, bad thing happening in your life. And you don't know. Just have a good life. Went to church. Uh, in fact, the church was so good, the name of the church, apparently, I'm trusting Jim on this, was called Country Club Church. That's how wholesome. Andy was in the Midwest. I mean, the Midwest is just wholesome. You know, people really don't sin in the Midwest. I mean, it's just, I know we can't understand here in New England. It's sort of like, get out of the way. But, you know, there, like in the Midwest, people like wave at you and you're like, who is that? I don't know. Just, everyone's nice. And so he's telling the story about, you know, his testimony. And you're kind of like, okay, you don't need salvation. You're fine. You're a good person. That's what we would say. You seem like a really nice, decent person. But, but Jim says, in all of that time, no one ever told me I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And so he didn't think he was. No one told him that he was. And he was fine. No need for rescue. But then finally he heard the gospel. And he realized God showed him that he really was a sinner in need of a Savior. And you say, well, what kind of sin did Jim have? And, and, and this is what he said in his testimony. He says, the thing was, it was all nice, it was all good, it was all wholesome, it was all American. But he says, at the end of the day, he was all about himself. His career, his goals, his agenda, it was all about him. And I don't know if there's a better definition of the heart of darkness than to be all about yourself. I mean, that's what... Satan said to the first couple in the Garden of Eden, he didn't come to them and say, if you will, you know, become a gun runner for the mafia. Like he didn't. He just came to them in, in the Garden of Eden. He said, you know, you could be like God. How about you being in charge? How about you being the king and the God? It's self-centeredness. It takes all kinds of forms. It's, it's not making God the center. It's not saying, Lord, your will be done. 
Lord, your glory be uppermost. Lord, you are the awesome king. It's, no, I, I did this. That's my career. I accomplished that. That's my family. That's my education. I'm proud. I did it. It's me. That's, what's the difference between that and, and what Satan says? It's the heart of darkness to think of yourself as God and as the master of your own fate and the king of your own life. And so he came to repent and believe that he needed a Savior. And he was brought from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. How? Verse 14. Through redemption. Redemption means to buy back a slave from slavery. And so Jesus came and Jesus gave his life as as the price to buy us back from the slavery of Egypt. He forgave our sins. I deserve to be swallowed up from my sins. I deserve to be drowned. I deserve to be torn apart from my sin. I deserve to be caught in the snare. But Jesus allowed himself to be caught in the snare, the trap that the Pharisees had laid. Jesus allowed himself to be uh, uh, torn apart by the whips. Jesus allowed himself to be drowned and carried away to the cross. He allowed himself to be swallowed up by the tomb. Christ bore our sins and it's in him we have redemption. And so we rejoice. You know, as Christians, we need to wake up every day rejoicing. We need to remember what Christ has done for us. We need to rehearse the gospel for us, for ourselves. Remind each other of what the Lord Jesus has done as we rehearse the gospel. You know, if you could wake up every day and have a visionary experience, Imagine having a visionary experience every day for two seconds. For one second of this visionary experience, you could see clearly the horrors of hell. And then that would go away. And then for the next second, you would see the glories of heaven. So but as you woke up every morning, you could see the hell that we've escaped and the heaven that Christ has gained for us. Imagine that. I wonder what your day would be like. You know? Do you know how fast you were going? Sorry, officer. Not aware. But you know what? I'm free. Christ has saved me. Well, you're getting a ticket. Fine. You just, you wouldn't. What would my perspective on life, if I could really see that, that after this life, blip is over. I have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and hell and judgment, and I've been brought into the kingdom of God, and it's all because of God's mercy and kindness, not because I'm a good Baptist or a good whatever. It's all what God has done. It would change our perspective on everything, and it would cause us to rejoice in all circumstances so that no matter how dark things got, we'd be like, end of the day, what I've been rescued from is ridiculous. And what I've been rescued to is amazing. And we'd be filled with rejoicing. And we'd probably be better witnesses too. We'd probably have more of an urgency to tell people about this gospel because we'd see it in light of eternity and not just in light of solving my problems today, however dire they may be. In light of eternity, this is the great rescue. Do you know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, just like me? 
Don't think that you can pull yourself out of this one. This isn't one where you can fix it yourself. There's nothing you can do. No no amount of religion, no religion can save you. No spirituality, no do-gooderism. This is something that only God can do. And God has done it by providing His Son. He didn't give us a ladder of good deeds and religious rituals to climb our way out. No, He came in a great invasion, a great D-Day through His Son, Jesus Christ, who threw Himself upon the beach for our freedom and our salvation. You need to lay hold of Christ. God has provided a way. Do you have Jesus? Have you been rescued? Have you come from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His Son? Have you bowed your knee before Christ and said, Lord Jesus, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you still save sinners. If you had not been on our side, let us say, if you had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed in our sins and drowned and shredded and caught forever. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. And God, I pray that you would give us a constant awareness of the eternal gravity of our rescue. And Lord, I pray that it would fill us with worship and fill us with praise. God, I pray that we'd be a church that is stoked with the worship that comes from the gospel. I pray that we would love rehearsing and reminding each other of the gospel in our congregation. And Lord, I pray for brothers and sisters who are here who right now are, do feel like the, the boa constrictor is wrapped around them. For brothers and sisters here who do feel like they're being carried downstream beyond their control. The dogs are charging in. The the net is over them. Lord, I just pray for those brothers and sisters that you would give them confidence that in your good time, in your good way, you rescue your people. And God, help them to keep holding on, keep trusting. Bring to mind remembrances of your goodness to them. And Lord, help us to encourage one another as a church. I pray that those of us who are strong would help those who are weak. And those of us who are weak would call upon those who are strong for encouragement. Because we know a week from now, the tables will be turned probably. And so, Lord, help us to love each other and support each other as a congregation, reminding each other of who you are and what you've done. And, Lord, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, Jesus, that you would show them, that you would show them that you are a great sinner, for great, a great Savior for great sinners like us. Oh, Lord, I pray they'd put their faith in you, that they would abandon all hopes of being good enough, religious enough, spiritual enough, decent enough, and that, Lord, they would put all of their hope on Christ, that they would be brought from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of your Son. Oh, Lord Jesus, keep rescuing, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.